I hope that you enjoy listening to this podcast at least half as much as we enjoy making it because it's an absolute pleasure for us. It, it really is a, a gift. And just the fact that you tune in to listen is something we deeply appreciate. So I hesitate to ask for anything else. However, if you feel inspired to share it with a friend, to leave us a review, to, to share it with the world, we would be so grateful and it would help us make the show just a little bit better every week. So thank you for sharing if you feel inspired. And now on to our show. LinkedIn presents. The advice I give people is think about forgiving someone, think about being forgiven, and think about something that you'd like to do that you haven't done yet. Because I can't stop time. No one can. But I can slow time and I can correct time. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, an exploration of medicine and the new human. Throughout history, there have been a surprising number of doctors who were also great writers. For some of these physicians, writing was apparently a diversion. William Carlos Williams, for instance, used to scribble his terse poems on prescription pads between patient visits. For others, time in the hospital seems to have stimulated their imaginations. When Arthur Conan Doyle was in medical school, he had a professor who could walk into a waiting room and diagnose people just by looking at them. These uncanny powers of observation inspired Conan Doyle's most famous creation, Sherlock Holmes. And then there are the doctors for whom writing seems to be a form of thinking, a way to process the lives they lead when they're wearing white coats. In this camp, I'd include someone like Oliver Sacks, who wrote about his patients not only as a way to make sense of their pathologies, but also to expand his reader's understanding of science, medicine, and the human condition. Another writer working in that vein is here with me today, Siddhartha Mukherjee. I don't usually read out my guest biographies, but Sid's is just so remarkable, I, I just can't resist. Born and raised in Delhi, he attended Stanford for undergrad and then earned a PhD at Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. After that, he got his MD at Harvard, and in 2009, he joined the oncology department at Columbia, where he teaches and manages a lab that is developing new cancer drugs. On top of that, if you can believe it, he's running four different biotech companies. His only flaw, as I learned when we connected on Zoom, is that he has a chronic case of bedhead. Though frankly, I think it's a good look. As I alluded to earlier, Sid is not just a doctor, He's also a writer and a gifted one. His first book, The Emperor of All Maladies, A Biography of Cancer, won a Pulitzer Prize and was turned into a documentary by Ken Burns. His next, The Gene, An Intimate History, shot to the top of the New York Times bestseller list and also received the Ken Burns treatment. He's got a new book out now called The Song of the Cell, 
and exploration of medicine and the new human. That song or story begins three and a half billion years ago when the first cells emerged. It gained speed in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries as a colorful cast of scientists and hobbyists discovered that all living things are made out of the same cellular building blocks. And it culminates in the present as researchers, sit among them, use their modern understanding of cells to design game-changing treatments for cancer and other diseases. Oh, you know what? I completely forgot to mention, Sid also sings in a jazz fusion band. If you're wondering, when does this guy sleep? Well, we talk about that in our conversation, which began a few minutes late because Sid had to finish up a phone call with a patient. Yes, he still treats patients, which is a lovely reminder, I think, of what ultimately motivates his tireless work across so many domains. Empathy, curiosity, passion, and as he says a few times in our conversation, a commitment to relieving suffering. As you're about to hear, new gene therapies reprogramming the human cell look like they're about to do that, and much, much more. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Siddhartha Mukherjee, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Sid, your first book, The Emperor of All Maladies, was about the quest to cure cancer. and It, it won a Pulitzer Prize. Congratulations. Thank you. Your second, The Gene, was a number one bestseller. And your latest, The Song of the Cell, has spent 12 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. I personally find this really encouraging because while your books are beautifully written, they're also full of dense, complicated science and very, very long footnotes. <laughs> and dense, complicated science is not something one typically associates with uh, success in publishing. Why do you think your work has resonated with such a large audience? I think that it's resonated because people are curious and people want to know. And bringing people into this what you call a dense, complicated world, and making it accessible, making it thoughtful, making people understand what are cells? How are we manipulating cells? What, where is genetics going? This stuff is, I think, endlessly interesting to people. And I think we, I think as writers, science writers, but as writers in general, we have the, we foolishly underestimate how curious the broader public is about sort of what's happening. Mm -hmm. Interesting, um, and I, and I think that's a terrible mistake. I think we that mm. underestimation leads to all sorts. Of, you know, it's like it's it's a kind of paternalism which mm -hmm. I cannot stand. <laughs> I, I'll tell you two anecdotes that are important. A, a very important mentor of mine said to me that if you're let's say you're doing research and 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 science research, 
And if you cannot explain to someone who is curious and interested in one sentence why what you're doing is important for human beings, you're in the wrong profession. You should be able to explain in one sentence. That should be one exercise that every scientist, every doctor, every person involved in the sciences is, can and should be able to do. And I would encourage if any science listeners are, are out there here, write that sentence down because you'll need that sentence in life because that'll sustain you for, for your entire lifetime. So that's one. And then point number two is someone else said to me that we underestimate the interest people have in bringing them to a completely new cosmos. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Think of Alice in Wonderland. Think of Tolkien. Think of Dune. Think of Hunger mm, yeah. Games. Think of, you know, what people want to do, I think, as readers, they want, they really want to enter a new cosmos with you, a new world. They want to know the rules of the world. They want to be in that world. And once you brought them into the world, they'll trust you. They'll say, okay, I'm in your world with you. In my, in my case, it happens to be genetics. It happens to be cell biology. It happens to be cancer. It happens to be longevity. It happens to be you know, the latest things we're doing, or the latest trials we're doing. But the idea is that there's an endless appetite for this cosmos of new things because it's interesting. You know, who isn't interested in entering Alice in Wonderland, you know, as a child? So the, my, my, my general thought about this is don't underestimate readers. Don't, mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. don't paternalize them. Yeah. Bring them into it and, and they'll come with you. There are passages in the book in which you really describe the mystery of the cell very much as if one is entering a cosmos. You talk about it as a, as a spaceship and talk about entering a cell and what you would see and what that, you know, you, you, you certainly convey that effectively. And, and do you think you talk a little bit about the distrust that the public has uh, in, in science in recent years, as sort of an anti-science strain? And do you think that, that, that this sense of a paternalism, of a kind of condescension of scientists to lay people is perhaps part of that? I imagine another part of it is the back and forth, the uncertainty of the scientific process, which is part of the process. People are pretty comfortable with uncertainty. Yeah. It's not like people are sitting there saying, scientists have got to be certain. They're generally forgiving. You know, I, I come back to the famous saying attributed to Keynes, John Maynard Keynes, who said, when facts change, I change my mind. What do you do? Yeah, I love that. Yeah, um, yeah. It's a very important quote because it, con it conveys both the humility of science, in his case, economic sciences and social sciences, but also it conveys the idea that it's an iterative process because facts change. A new viral strain emerges and all of a sudden everything you knew about viruses changes. A new way of thinking about the universe comes about and all of a sudden, you know, you have to throw your old ideas out of the window. Now, that doesn't mean, and this is very, very important, Rufus. Facts change, conclusions change, but there are two things that don't change. Number one is that the scientific process, the process by which we evaluate evidence doesn't change. In other words, when new facts come about, they go through the same kind of evaluative process. That process 
has been refined for nearly five centuries. Some people would say, mm. you know, maybe longer, maybe, you know, 2000 years since the Indians and Egyptians and the Chinese and, and you know, mm. various other yeah. civilizations began to interrogate the natural world. Okay. So the process hasn't changed and the standards of proof have not changed. If, if anything, they've improved. Facts change, theories change, laws change, the universe changes, new viral strains emerge, vaccinations change, but the process by which a truth becomes a truth has not changed and has not changed for the last several hundred years. And, and the process hasn't changed in part because it's been proven to work, right? It works I've, very, I've, very right. well. It works and, really well. Well, Sid, you're doing a lot of a lot of different things in parallel. You're running a cancer research lab. You're a professor of medicine at Columbia. You're a practicing oncologist, and you write for both scientific journals and popular magazines. And you and you write these best-selling books. And as I understand it, you also perform with it with the jazz fusion band. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> I'm I'm curious to know first of all whether you get enough sleep. When do you sleep? How do you how do you manage to do all these things in parallel? Some of us could use some coaching as to how how, how to be this. Uh, oh, this look, productive. you know, um, I have terrible sleep. I wake up in the middle of the night with ideas and I write them down. Mm. Oh yes, I have this problem. And you commented on my my general appearance, which looks as if mm -hmm. I've climbed out of bed and walked into into a scientific meeting or a studio, and I've just I've just let it go at this point of time. You know. If that's what it takes, that's what it takes, whatever. So that's that. And and yes, I do sleep. I sleep a lot on flights because I'm traveling. And what, what else can I say? I don't have the greatest sleep in the world, but uh, I'm stuck with that. And, you know, uh, I, I wish... I wish other people had better sleep than I did. Well, I'm I'm sorry to hear that. We had a, we had a great podcast conversation with Dr. Russell Foster on, on this topic, but I think for all of us, sleep sleep is a is a challenge to some degree. Well, I have lots of sleep advice. If you ever want sleep yeah. advice, I can give you I can yeah, give yeah. You more sleep advice than probably anyone else that's been on your show. Yeah, yeah. Turning to the story of the cell, you you say in the song of the cell, every time you look at a microscope you relive the thrill of looking at your first cell. Uh, and you describe that Friday afternoon in 1993 when you peered into your microscope and saw a mass of kidney-shaped T cells that possessed what you describe as an inner glow and luminous fullness, the signs of healthy, active cells, you say, like eyes looking back at you. So there's, there, there's a kind of reverence, right, for, for sort of the, the magic of the cell. And and I I realized reading your book that I didn't pay enough attention in biology class apparently because there was a lot a lot of a lot of new information there for me that uh, to me it's astonishing that the cells in plants and animals are so similar these are these units of life that are universal and they each have this incredibly sophisticated set of processes right of organs or organelles um, do cells feel miraculous to you? Yeah, they feel miraculous to me, but you know, I always think about the idea that you know, there are three big laws that run through biology, and it's very important to know those three big laws. The first is the theory of evolution. And now we know so much about it, and it it runs through the entire animal kingdom 
and explains so much about the diversity, the forms, the molecular evolution, the, you know, everything we know about life, so much that we know about life. So that's one. The second is the universality of the genetic code. So genes as units of information, genes encoded in particular ways, and the fact that basically speaking, give or take, right from bacteria to archaea to humans to elephants to blue whales to um, whatever animal lorises that you want to think about, there's a genetic code that's running through them. And what's amazing about it is that give or take with certain differences, the code can be transferred from one to the other. As I said, there's some differences, but give or take, that's, it's a universal code. Astonishing idea. And the third is cell biology, is that all these creatures, large and small, all living creatures are made out of either single cells or accumulations of single cells. So cell theory. Three huge laws that are running through the world of living beings. Now, there are a thousand books on evolution, a thousand books on genetics, including my own, the gene and intimate history. But there's been really no, I would say, big book on the cell. It's sort of like the cell got gypped. Um, <laughs> and I wanted to correct that. I wanted to make sure that it was restored to its appropriate lawfulness in the universe of life and the universe of our understanding of life. And, you know, you come back to the idea of miraculous. Yes, it's miraculous, but it's a consequence of the other few things. It's a consequence yeah, yeah. of evolution. It's a consequence of three odd billion years of the existence of life. It's a consequence of genes being information that's then translated and, and enlivened by cells. So yes, it's miraculous in some ways, but it's not miraculous in the way we think about, you know, it's not a divine miracle. It's a it's an evolutionary yeah, miracle. Sure. Yeah, it's a yeah. miracle of of how how life emerges. And you know, scientists may not be able to tell you the exact date, you know, January 16th, 3 billion BC, that life emerges. But we can tell you the broad outlines of what we think is the development of life, the development of complex life, the development of multicellular life, the development of organs, organelles, et cetera, et cetera, in broad terms. And you can say that's a miracle. You can say that's science, but it is what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is extraordinary to me that the, that our planet has been around for some, what, four billion years? And not long after the planet first came together, we had early beginnings of life. We had single-celled organisms. And then there's this question of how the first multicellular organisms evolved. And I was fascinated by your description of this uh, evolutionary biologist, Lynn Margulis's case she made in 1967, I think, that complex organisms may have evolved, and I'm quoting here, not by standard natural selection, but by an orgy of cooperation in which cells engaged so closely together that they got inside each other. So you had two separate single-celled organisms potentially you know, converging. And for, for people who like to think about all living things 
being sort of connected in some fashion. And we know we have billions of bacteria in our gut and that we are ourselves individually really a, a, a kind of a collaboration of organisms. This notion that the first multicellular organisms may have been actually separate organisms joining forces, thats I, I find that kind of amazing. It is amazing. And, you know, this is uh, work done by Lynn Margulis way back when, um, 60s, 70s, and she was sort of laughed off the, off the stage. But now we know that that's uh, true inside our cells, inside human cells, and this is maybe astonishing to some, are organelles such as mitochondria, mm. which generate energy. And the mitochondria, as far as we can tell, are, are really bacterial cells or cells that are similar to bacterial cells that our ancient primitive cells swallowed and entered into a symbiotic relationship with. and. Over time, it turned out that that was that had an evolutionary advantage, and that's how we ended up having, you know, our complex cells. It's a beautiful idea. It's an important idea. There's a lot of evidence for it, uh, molecular, genetic, and other evidence for it. But um, it's not only. I mean, just to press the idea home, it's not only that we are, you know, because we have so many bacterial cells on our skin and inside our intestines. We're not only assemblages of cells in a macroscopic sense, we're also assemblages of cells in the microscopic sense. In other words, our cells are really assemblages of some ancient cell that swallowed a bacterial cell that then found that it was, an, it was of advantage to, to do that. And that's how we evolved. It's so extraordinary. And it's it's equally extraordinary to to learn about this multi-generational, multi-century process of of figuring all this out. And you clearly in the Song of the Cell have a great admiration for the early scientists and, and tinkerers who back in the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries were making all sorts of remarkable discoveries about the functions of cells in the body. Uh, and I think during the pandemic lockdown, you actually built your own replica of an early microscope <laughs> in case in case any listeners didn't think you were geeky enough to begin with. Uh, oh, uh, uh, I'm as geeky as they come, and I, I'm, I'm proud of it. Geeky and proud. <laughs> uh, it sounds remarkable. If, uh, if you had a, a time machine and could travel back to talk to one of those proto-biologists whose discoveries helped shape the future of medicine, who, who would you want to visit and, and what kind of conversation would you want to have with them? Do you mean a contemporary protobiologist or a contemporary cell biologist or, or, or what do you, what's... No, I mean, I mean, if you could, I mean, I mean, you describe in the Song of the Cell all these extraordinary early, early scientists who made the, these these you know extraordinary early discoveries? And I, I'm always finding myself wanting to thinking like how much fun Darwin would have reading your book today, right? <laughs> right. I mean, some of these early scientists would just be wide eyed and gap jawed to to learn what has happened since then. Oh my uh, God, that's such a lovely idea, by the way. On a side note, the idea of Darwin reading my book is makes me <laughs> very, very happy. But you could get a blur, maybe a blurb from Darwin. I could get a blurb from Darwin. Exactly. Dear Mr. Darwin, I've written a book about how important your theory has been to my life and to 
to the planet in general would you be would you, would you be kind enough to say that this book <laughs> this book reads well uh, anyway keep going yeah so so i guess i guess i'm curious about among you you know one of the things you do in the song of the cell is you bring to life dozens and dozens and dozens of of early scientists and tinkers who made these critical discoveries and they and they built on one another incrementally and i i guess maybe the question is who who among them were you most kind of enamored with fascinated by well i'll, I'll give you some examples but they're all they're all so crazy they're they're, they're like such crackpots that that would be interesting to meet all of them but i'll give you a couple <laughs> um yeah there's there's robert hook he's he's a cantankerous guy He's a bit of a polymath. I don't know if he has a jazz band, but he probably would if he could. Um, but he, you know, he is a uh, microscopist, a physicist, an architect, a designer, an illustrator, uh, an engineer, a tinkerer, etc., etc., etc. So Robert Hooke would be a fun character to visit, partly because he was such a cantankerous magman. At yeah. one point of time, he he said that he it was he who thought about the laws of gravitation, and this made Newton so angry <laughs> that, that the story goes that when when the Royal Society moved its offices from its old office to its new office, so Robert Hooke used to be the president of the Royal Society, and then Newton was the next president that Newton was so pissed that he took the one portrait of Robert Hooke that ever existed in the world, and he purposefully neglected to move it to the new office. And that portrait has been <laughs> lost. And so the man oh who invented or partially invented optics, the art of seeing, does not have an optical visual representation of him. We don't know what he looked like. We don't know what Robert <laughs> Hook looked like. But there are others. You know, there's crazy Lewenhook, uh, the, the inventor yeah, yeah. of the microscope. You know, he's as crazy as they come. He's not a scientist. He refuses to let other people examine his microscopes. He's living in Delft. He's a cloth trader, never trained in science. It'd be fun to meet him and say, you know, why didn't you just let you know, someone from the Royal Society looked down your microscope. Like, what was with you? Yeah, and he did these beautiful drawings, that didn't he, of, of, of what he saw. Incredibly beautiful drawing. And the last person I'll say is, uh, you know, someone like Francis Kelsey, um, an administrator in the um, in, at the FDA who said, who looked at the evidence and said, thalidomide was not safe for pregnant women. I'd love to meet Frances Kelsey and just shake her hand and say, you know what? You did a great service. Hmm. And thank you because everyone, you know, you, you were pushed by drug companies. You were pushed by the FDA and you said, you know, thank you, but no, thank you. Because I, I have my standards. I'm not going to bend. I'm going to have my own standards. You have to prove to me that this drug is safe. And I'm not sure that it is and saved hundreds of thousands of lives. So it's a range all the way back from Robert Hooke to Francis Kelsey. Though I have not built my own microscope, 
I did purchase a microscope on Amazon while reading your book, uh, which I, I discovered for a few hundred dollars, you can get a, a like a, what appears to be a professional microscope. These I know days. you can get you, you um, it in your house. It's actually kind very of very powerful, right? And and this, but because this description of a drop of rainwater. Uh, when first viewed through the first decent microscopes, suddenly revealing hundreds of undulating organisms. So this, this, you know, this world just burst into view and, and what a revelation that was. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. Moving into the present, let's talk a little bit about stem cells. They've been a buzzword in medicine for the last several years and a source of some political controversy, but now we have new techniques and there, there's a real explosion of, of new uh, exciting applications of those stem cells. Is that right? There's a special kind of stem cell called an embryonic stem cell. This is a cell that you can grow and makes copies of itself. So you can grow it in a lab, in, in, in culture, like you can grow any other cell type. But under the right circumstances, you can make that stem cell give rise to all the necessary tissues that are in the human body. So cartilage, bone, blood, most tissues you can derive from stem cells. I should say blood is an exception, but that's a side story. So these are extraordinary cells. Um, they're derived from embryos, and they have extraordinary capacity to give rise to other cells. And for a while, people thought that there was a moral there was a moral outrage about the fact that these cells were being derived from embryos, and therefore were in the gray zone for some people who thought that they should not be uh, used in laboratory research because. In principle, number one, they were derived from embryos, and, and number two, they could in principle give rise to embryos, so they should not be used for biological research. In a series of astonishing experiments, Japanese researchers Shinya Yamanaka and some others, I won't name all the names, but some others discovered that you can actually bypass um, deriving these cells from an embryo and use any cell in the body, a skin cell, a cell from anywhere else in the body, and make them into cells that are like these embryonic stem cells. 
They are called iPS cells, induced pluripotent stem cells. You don't need to know why they're called that, but they behave for the most part like embryonic stem cells. And by genetically manipulating these, these um, skin cells, you can make them behave like embryonic stem cells. It's almost as if you took a cell from your body, you know, a cell from your skin, and made it into one of these embryonic cells, thereby bypassing some of these religious and other concerns that these cells were derived from embryos and could give rise to embryos. It seems like the potential implications of this and the, the, the range of diseases that could be treated are almost endless. Is that right? Um, absolutely. There's, a, there's, an en there's enormous potential. It's, I would say, still in process. So it's unrealized potential, but that's how science works, right? So you, you, you've advanced an idea. It seems mad to start with, and then slowly it seems less and less mad. And then finally, all of a sudden, you know, you're taking a gene therapy, a chemical therapy, a medicine that seemed mad 10 years ago. So this is how science works. And that's what makes the pace of it blistering. And that's why people are interested in it. Because I don't know, someone in the world with sickle cell anemia wants to know what's the latest. And very, very soon, not far from the, in the future, we will have cures for sickle cell anemia based on all these technologies, based on this technology that, it, that I just described, making stem cells and progenitor cells out of your own cells and others, other kinds of technologies. So it's more exciting than flying cars. These are cures for deadly diseases that humans have had for since the birth of humanity. Mm. And it's extremely exciting. It's on par with the, the most exciting technologies that you can think about. And I often say, you know, right now, people ask me, you know, what's the most exciting technology I can think about? And I think, say, there are two. It's what I call general artificial intelligence and cell therapy for various diseases. Those are I would say the the two most exciting arenas of technology. It's not electric cars. It's not self-driving vehicles. All those are interesting to me. I would add one a third to that, and the third one would be mitigation of climate change, um, yeah. whatever that might be. But those are three things that I find when I'm reading, you know, a scientific journal. It sends goosebumps up up my spine. As you say, this is not hypothetical. I mean, some, you know, there, there's, there's certainly some treatments that could become possible at some time in the future. But you, you say in the book, as I write, there are two companies making stem cells that can turn into pancreatic cells, right? The, the, the Mayo Clinic is working on a bio-artificial liver. There are folks working on a bio-artificial heart. This is happening now. Do you see cancer as, as, as curable? I see some cancers as, as curable in the short run. I see some cancers as preventable in the short and long run. And I see can some cancers as detectable in the short and long run. I think the solution to cancer is going to be a mix. We'll prevent some, 
will detect some early and cut them out, and some we will treat based on new therapeutics. Breast cancer is a good example. In breast cancer, we're, we're getting there. So there is preventative stuff in breast cancer. We know some of the risk factors, some genetic, some non-genetic. We can identify people who are at high risk, and we can tell them what to do um, in order to help prevent breast cancer. We can do early detection. It helps a little bit. And finally, if you were to have breast cancer, we have now not one, not two, not three, not four, not five, but tens of medicines that work for some variants, the majority of the variants of breast cancer that will extend your life, not one, not two, not five, but up to 10 years, up to 15 years with breast cancer. So we do have paradigms life-changing, life-shifting paradigms for cancers. They're just not there for every cancer. The subtitle of your book, Sid, is Provocative, uh, an Exploration of Medicine and the New Human. And you say that future humans will, uh, I'm quoting you here, be rebuilt anew with modified cells. And these new humans will look and feel mostly like you and me. So presumably they'll look and feel a little bit better, <laughs> then how, how do you think of the, about the new human? Well, the, the subtitle of the book is purposefully provocative. I wanted to get away from this idea of the new human as kind of a robotic, sort of blue pill swallowing Keanu Reeves creature in a black moo. Um, <laughs> I wanted to get to the idea that we're already there. And sometimes that's interesting because people think about the future as if we're not there. Yeah. But sometimes it's important to remind people that we've already crossed thresholds that have put us already there. And that's why the, I, I bring up the idea of the new human. And the new human is, to me, someone who, where we're manipulating cells and genes. It's someone um, who might have an organ that we built out of cells that we manipulated. It might be someone in whom we've inserted electrodes to stimulate brain circuits so that they're not depressed. But most importantly, the new human to me is not, and this is very important to me as a physician and as a scientist, is not someone that we're trying to augment, but is someone who we're trying to heal. And that distinction remains extremely important for me. I'm not interested in augmenting humans. I'm interested in healing humans. There might be other people who are interested in augmenting humans, making them, I don't know, taller, smarter. I'm not there. I am interested in healing humans who have sickness, healing humans who are vulnerable, healing humans who have debilitating illnesses, through cell and gene and other therapies, that human being is much more interesting to me, is a much more empathetic way to think about new humans than this kind of enhancement, augmented, robotic, lupil-swallowing creature that exists in science fiction. I'm not interested. Um, other people are. I'm fine with it. Great. I'm, I'm a doctor. I like healing people. I'm interested in healing people. 
I'm interested in other people healing people. I'm interested when those people come alive from the dead. And when they come alive from the dead because of gene and cell therapies, mm, because yeah. of things we've in invented, they're new humans to me. Don't you think, though, that in practice, the distinction between healing and augmenting is going to get blurry, right? I mean, it's already, uh, you know, it's already blurry, right, right. I mean, we, we think about, you know, cures for Alzheimer's might have the effect of enhancing memory, um, or we may be able to prolong life by turning back the clock of cells, which could also have the effect of extending the lifespan of ordinary people. I mean, it, it seems to me that there's a pattern which is anything too, too new is, is, is frightening at first, uh, but gradually, incrementally, we become more comfortable with uh, forms of progress that extend the human lifespan. I mean, it seems that in the coming decades, we're likely to have some real decisions as a, as a species about how much augmentation we think is okay. The lines are blurring. I have some strong lines about it, and I can talk to you about them. You know, I think the strong lines are, I think suffering is important and pinning ourselves to, to relieving suffering as opposed to augmenting humans is important. I think that the second piece of the triangle is scientific proof and certainty so that we don't enter into areas that are murky, scientifically unproven, and that there is standards. We talked about proof and standards that those are met. And the third area of the triangle is humanistic consent, freedom, choice, the absence of pressure, the presence of full information. I think if we stay within the boundaries of these triangles, I think we're okay. If we stray outside these boundaries and try to augment ourselves outside these, this triangle, I think we get into trouble. And that's where we enter debates that are beyond what physicians and scientists can engage in and have to be entered through, you know, legal, philosophical, humanistic, and other ideas that are outside my limited purview of the world. From a scientific perspective, you know, there's, there's been a lot, of, a lot of talk recently about extending the human lifespan. From a scientific perspective, it seems that that is not impossible, that this, this obsolescence of of cells is potentially modifiable. Does that sound right? It sounds right, and it, it's probably right. To be totally honest, um, uh, let me give you some practical considerations and then some philosophical considerations. The practical considerations are that if you think about this, again, if you think about standards and proof, these are very, very difficult trials to run. Running a trial for the extension of life is not an easy study, as you can imagine, right? I'll just walk you through it. How do you do it? You, you put two groups together, one gets a treatment and the other doesn't get a treatment. And then you wait for what, 15 years until you figure out whether the, the first group is, is living longer than the other, right? That would be strong, randomized, blinded scientific proof that you've extended life. Name a single company or investor that's willing to invest 15-year trial 
such that they can extend life in a scientifically validated way so that the proof is met. Okay, name, name one. So that's the, that's the practical end of things. And now I'm going to talk about the philosophical piece of it. Philosophically speaking, as I said, my interest, and I suspect an interest of, of a lot of people, is in suffering. Yeah. If you were to tell me that the aged, which is true, and this would be a true fact, the aged are suffering from bone loss, frequent falls, and breaking bones and dying because of that and having pain and suffering. I could say I can solve that problem using whatever mechanisms I have. If you say they have loss of memory, they have loss of autonomy, they have loss of agency, their brains are not working. I could say, well, okay, I can look into that. I'm not the person. I don't work on this, but I could look into that. If you say to me, the aged are suffering because they're not living long enough. Is that suffering? You're suffering because you're not living long enough? It's pretty vague for me. And I would say in my list of things to do in life, and I have a limited number of things I can do aside from being in jazz bands, um, I would say not that interested. Some other people might be. For me, no. On the subject of jazz bands, the name of the book is the song of the cell and you talk towards the end of the book about the sort of new frontier of understanding not only the mechanisms of how cells behave which we understand pretty well but the macro mechanisms through which cells are citizens of the body and collaborate on ever larger scales do you feel when you're playing in your jazz fusion band do you feel a connection between music and the functioning of our bodies? Uh, and, and is that, uh, can you tell us more about your choice for the title of the book, The Song of the Cell? So the two separate questions there. Number one is that it's not a hidden secret that there is a connection between music and science, and perhaps a connection between music and mathematics and science. Yeah. When no one's explored it systematically, mm -hmm. my intuition, and I might be wrong, my intuition is that it's not a coincidence. The parts of the brain that have to do with, one have to do with the other. Sometimes they are all manifest together, sometimes they're not. But I don't think it's a coincidence. I may be wrong, I'm happy to be proven wrong. I'd love to see some, some real data on this. As I said, I'm interested in standards and proof, but I, uh, uh, my intuition is that it's not a coincidence. So that's, Answer to question number one. Question number two is why is it called the song, song of the cell? Well, because there are two songs. Song number one is that the cell plays out the song of the genome. Think about jazz. Mm. You give a piece to Miles Davis and Miles Davis plays it out a certain way. Um, you give the same piece to Ella and she sings it out a certain way. You give the same piece to Vijay Iyer, he plays it out a certain other way. It's the same score. And that's the same story with cells. You know, your brain cells, your neurons, your blood cells, the T cells, the kidney cells in your body have the same score. But like Ella and Vijay and Miles and 
Polonius and whoever else, they're playing it out in different ways. It's the same score, but the song that comes out is completely different. So that's one song of the cell. And then there's a second song of the cell, and that is, I mean, I'm just going to continue this analogy, and pardon me if it gets a little convoluted. Polonius plays a piece of music, and then he runs, you know, walks into, you know, 134th Street and meets Ella. And they say to each other, you know, that was very interesting the way you played that piece. But I don't understand it. I don't understand how you took that same thing and you played it. Let's let's get together and figure out how you played it and how I played it, how they're different, how we talk to each other, how we communicate with each other. That conversation, I think, is still missing. We don't know it. We can't hear it. And I'd love to hear it. That conversation between individual cells who are playing out different songs, but ultimately are creating the body of music is a song that we still don't know. And I'll give you the simplest example to end. Mm. Stephen Paget, the English surgeon, said in the 19th century, said, the liver and spleen are two organs. They sit next to each other, one to the left, one to the right. They're about the same size. They have about the same flux of blood in them. The liver is among the most frequent sites of cancer metastases. The spleen is among the least frequent sites of cancer metastases. Why? We still don't know the answer to the question. And that has to do with the fact that cancer cells can sing their song out in the liver, but they can't sing their song out in the spleen. Why? I don't know. No one knows. The answers are going to be fascinating and interesting, and that's where we're going. Hey, folks. I'm interrupting this episode to share some exciting news. We just launched a new podcast. It's called The Next Big Idea Daily, and it's hosted by my colleague and dear friend, Michael Kovnat, who's here with me now. Michael, do you want to tell us a little bit about the show? I sure do, Rufus. You know, as a co-founder of the Next Big Idea Club, I get to talk to some of the smartest nonfiction writers working today, people with big ideas about creativity, productivity, parenting, relationships, decision-making, leadership. I mean, these are people who write big books full of media ideas, books that we all want to read, but come on, I mean, who has the time? I don't have the time, Michael. They're just, there's so many of these books and they're so good. Exactly. So the way we're going to solve this problem is on this podcast, this new podcast, The Next Big Idea Daily, we're going to serve up these authors' big ideas in short daily nuggets. In just minutes, listeners will get a quick masterclass in better, smarter living from thinkers like Adam Grant, Kim Scott, Daniel Pink, and lots of other writers with life-changing ideas. I love that these are just 10 to 15 minutes a day. That's like perfect for sipping my morning coffee. And I've been loving this week's episodes with Daniel Coyle. I've already learned a lot. If listeners want to check them out, what should they do? Just follow The Next Big Idea Daily on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, 
Uh, Sid, you opened the book with the story of your friend Sam, who was diagnosed with a malignant melanoma in 2016. And initially, he responded well to treatment. He went into remission, but the cancer came back. And ultimately, tragically, as, as you write, the melanoma won. Do you think that do you think that we today would have a better chance at 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 fighting that cancer or do you think that 10 or 15 or 20 years from now we might have been able to have a different outcome? Oh, I think today we'd have a better outcome. I think that there are a series of new drugs since that time since 2016 and 2017 that allow us to have much much more control on cancer. And I think that maybe this time we would have won, but that's just a hope. Yeah. Yeah. Well, boy, it, it sure creates a kind of urgency around, around the work that you, that you and many others are doing. It's, uh, it's pretty extraordinary. I, I, I was, I was really moved by, um, your passage where you said the last time you saw Sam, he asked you, what happens at the end? And you thought back to all the patients you'd been with near the end of their lives, and you you gave him some advice. I wonder if you could share that with us. I mean, the advice I give people is think about forgiving someone, think about being forgiven, and think about something that you'd like to do that you haven't done yet. Because I can't stop time. No one can. But I can slow time and I can correct time. And by correct time, I mean when people die, and I see this every day, you know, it's part of my practice. I say to people, what's, what's hankering you? And the answer is often that they haven't told someone that they love them. They haven't forgiven someone and they haven't been forgiven by someone. Just three simple things. Mm. And I say, okay, yeah, there's a phone next to you. Pick up the phone and say to someone that you haven't forgiven, just say, I forgive you. Or pick up the phone and say to someone, I'm really sorry I did something. Can you please forgive me? And pick up the phone and say to someone, I love you. And that's okay. There is a spiritual burden that's lifted from you when you say those three things and you make yourself ready to die. It's readying yourself. You know, you can crash a plane, you can land a plane. I want people to land a plane. And it, it's it's good advice for those of us who who are not yet at the end as well. Uh, it's uh, uh, very moving. Uh, well, well, Sid, we're we're, we're both parents. I, I have three sons. I think you have two daughters. Um, and I think it's pretty common for parents to have mixed feelings these days about the world we're living. Our children, as you mentioned earlier, the climate is in peril. You know, democracy is under siege. But boy, it feels reading your book. It feels like medicine is kind of a silver lining that there's uh, that this is a really hopeful part of, of 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 the story of where we're headed. Do you feel that way? I'm optimistic. I think we'll 
solve these problems. We just have to resolve ourselves to it. Well, Sid, thank you uh, for taking time out of your jazz band and your seeing your <laughs> the, patients. And the jazz band has figured all too much in this. <laughs> your 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 microscope building and all of your activities to be with us today. We 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 so appreciate it. By the way, I would love to. Uh, I, I don't know if you guys ever play in the city, but I'd love to come hear you. Yeah, guys. we play in the city all the time. Um, we're big national sawdust people. We are Met people. We play in the city. Uh, come, come, join us. That was Sid Mukherjee, the author most recently of The Song of the Cell, which is available wherever books are sold. If you enjoyed this episode, you might also like the conversation I had on this show with Walter Isaacson about CRISPR gene editing technology. Walter's just amazing. I think you'll love it. You can find a link in the show notes. Do you have thoughts about this episode? I'd love to hear them. Message me, Rufus Griscom, on LinkedIn. And while you're there, sign up for our newsletter where you can get a behind the scenes look at these episodes and discuss the series with other listeners. If you wanna subscribe, there's a link in the episode notes. Today's show was written and produced by Caleb Bissinger, sound designed by Mike Toda, our collaborators at the LinkedIn Podcast Network wear as many different hats as Sid does. I'm Rufus Griscom, see you next week.